0: You are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud native data management. My name is Ryan Wallner, and I'm joined by Bob and Shah, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud native ecosystem.
1: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. for the ones who get it done.
0: Good morning and good evening and good afternoon, wherever you are. We're coming to you here from Boston, Massachusetts, and today is August 18th. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe and let's dive into it. So Bhavan, what do we wanna do first? We wanna dive into
2: what's new in sort of cloud native storage news, right? Why don't you kick it off? I don't know do you want to talk about uh what we did what we have been up to I guess
0: I guess we can do that <laughs> I guess if you if you think that's so important no uh please yeah please I
2: guess you know go ahead and
0: we yeah. can go into what we've been up to
2: perfect so th- I, just, I I was just looking for a chance to brag like I went to Acadia uh National <laughs> Park this weekend uh did some camping uh two nighter uh thing uh and then saw uh, like Planned a couple of hikes. Unfortunately, one of them were closed because of falcon nesting season, apparently. Uh, so I had to switch things in real time and then choose a different hike. That ended up being a fun uh, hike too. But yeah, that that was my weekend, like camping in Acadia and then doing a few hikes and then just hanging out at the only beach they have there. Nice, Falcon nesting season. I
0: mean, everybody knows about that, Bobbin. You really, you really <laughs> should have known coming yeah. into that that you would not be able to use those trails. Uh, that sounds great. You beat my weekend. Uh, I mean, I, I celebrated a family member's birthday party, uh, and we did some golfing, and we saw a lot of family, which in this kind of um, you know COVID era uh, is you know we take for granted, and it was great to see everybody. But I don't.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it felt good. It felt good. <laughs> Great. Okay, now, now I guess we can jump into into <laughs> what's happening in the Kubernetes ecosystem now that we have handled what's going on with us. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about today was uh, just the CNCF cloud native survey is out. Like, If you remember, if you're part of the community, you saw that part one was out during KubeCon Europe. Uh, Part two is now open. If you fill it out before, I think, September 10, uh, you might win a few passes to the actual physical event this year, which is in October. So go ahead and follow the link in the show uh, to find the, the link to the survey.
0: Yeah, and it's important, you know, because this really helps the the whole community kind of understand what CNC projects are being used and how they're using other uh, parts of Kubernetes in terms of what, you know, networking and storage and obviously storage is what we care about. So please go ahead and fill it out if you want to. We'll put it again, like
2: Bob said, in the show notes. Yep. And then, uh, like if you look at the last two weeks, one of the major announcements that we saw coming was from Red Hat and how they have partnered with Nutanix to support OpenShift on their uh, native hypervisor called AHV. So. Uh, if you are a Nutanix customer or an OpenShift customer, the way you used to run things was you deployed OpenShift on virtual machines running on VMware vSphere on Nutanix. But now because of this new partnership, you can also run it on the, on Nutanix's native hypervisor, which is a cropless hypervisor or AHV. And you can run your OpenShift clusters on Nutanix and just giving you another way to modernize your infrastructure or modernize your applications uh, in, in that ecosystem.
0: Yeah, that's 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 true. And OpenShift four 8 is out, um, which uh, as I think, OpenShift Container Storage. 4.8 is also out. I think they've uh, matched them up finally in uh, the version numbers now. They've, they come out at the same time, um, which there's some really great stuff there uh, based on Kubernetes 1.2.1 and you know, OpenShift Container Storage. does a lot of great things, and uh, I know there's some great things that are still in Tech Preview and Developer mm-hmm. Review uh, around disaster recovery
2: and, and backup. A lot of near and dear topics here that we'll, we'll talk
0: about. So yeah, 4.8 uh,
2: was a big release like outside storage as well. Uh, if if you are following and uh, the OpenShift release cycle, I was watching the the talk on YouTube that they do every release. Uh, it was around OpenShift serverless functions is now in tech preview. So again, if you want to adopt serverless uh, on your OpenShift clusters, you can you can get started with it. A sandbox containers is also uh, available now. So uh, this is where OpenShift will deploy like really lightweight virtual machines for you to run uh, for workloads or applications that, are, that require that higher level of isolation uh, and wants its own set of resources. So OpenShift sandbox containers are available as well. Very cool, very cool. What else? Uh, what, what what do we have around the the community? Do we have any 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 interesting events happening uh, for the past two weeks?
0: Yeah. So the uh, data on Kubernetes uh, community. If you're not familiar with it, uh, we'll also put a link to that community in the show notes. But they do um, sort I think it's weekly or more than weekly. I mean, they have a ton of events um, and talks going on every week. And and you know, Bava and I try to keep up with them. One of the ones this week that really piqued our interest uh, was around DB which is which. Is is really a solution and a project from Apps Code, I believe, that's open source um, that really targets sort of the databases as a service on top of Kubernetes. And and really what I love about this project is that it recognizes that running applications in production takes more than just creating, you know, a staple set and making it run on Kubernetes, right? It, it takes monitoring and metrics and uh, updates and schema changes. And it really takes this to a database focus, uh, something that again, is is we like to uh, look at and, and sort of, um, you know, from our perspective and our day jobs, and so I know you actually went to this meetup. I I couldn't make it, but what what did you what did you get from it? Yeah, uh,
2: so th- it was a really cool presentation. I think it was by the founder CEO uh, who who used to work at Google uh, in the early days and now has started to dis- uh, like come up with this Cube DB offering. Uh, he spent a fair amount of time discussing the challenges associated with running these databases and data services on Kubernetes and things that you might that might not be uh, like. Uh, the first thing that come to your mind when you're thinking about deploying stateful applications. So how do you handle those and then how do you deploy a solution that can uh, handle things like monitoring and metrics collection and maybe even backup and disaster recovery uh, and then do it across different data services. So it was a really cool presentation. Yeah, well, I think one thing that we,
0: we often see is that you know organizations run more than one database, right? So having a consistent way to do this across many different databases. Uh, I know, I think you mentioned MongoDB and Postgres being one yeah. of the twos they t- showed or first supported. But yeah, uh, definitely if you're interested in, in that space, keep an eye on those sort of solutions. You know, QDB, really cool project. Uh, we'll put a link to both the meetup, which I think you'll be able to uh, watch a recording and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and just get a, a greater uh, introduction to the DOK um, community. Uh, last one, I think I wanted to touch on was uh, there was a great article in the CNCF uh, blog about application consistency, and the reason I really liked this one is because it really talked about you know how how hard managing a application is on Kubernetes, and you know we say that in a very simple way. It's like it's an application, <laughs> uh, but in Kubernetes that may, that means like there's config maps, there's secrets, there's uh, pods. There's staple sets. There's you know uh, persistent volumes. Yeah, the list goes on. <laughs> the list goes on. Right? You can literally go. I mean, it, it, it definitely adds some complexity. But um, you know, in the storage space, we we often talk about having a consistent snapshot or a consistent view or backup of an application. And so it, this article does a really great job of kind of understanding all of these pieces and then. Um, you know, which are which are generally ephemeral. You can make copies of them as metadata. Um, are sort of disparate from uh, the actual data in the of volumes. And then, how do you uh, then take a consistent view of that all that all that metadata and the various volumes? And what if those volumes exist on on different? Uh, back-end storage systems, right? If you have two CSI plugins or something like that. So really cool article I'll I'll link to. Uh, I think a really good topic for those interested in in listening to this podcast.
2: Perfect. Like one of the things, uh, again, one last thing, Uh, part of another community, the Cloud Native Data Management Community, uh, they have a co-located event at KubeCon this year in the US. So uh, again, if you look if you're looking if you're using uh, cloud native data management or stateful apps you can submit for sessions Their CFP is open uh, so I will again uh, have a link in the show notes uh, where you can find the CFP
0: Yeah. And, you know, we're, um, you know, we'll probably dive into the the main topic soon, but we have a few other things that I think, uh, you know, we'll we'll put in the show notes around uh, CSI proxy on Windows, which is a really cool technology. Uh, Istio uh, 111 is GA. uh, And you had a really great article about um, sort of VCs and Series A
2: funding for, who
0: was that you were talking
2: about? Nirmata. They got like a $4 million pre-Series A funding. So, Again, VCs are putting a lot of money into Kubernetes startups. So uh, we all of us understand the challenges associated with it. And uh, using Kubernetes is like using a watch. As long as it runs fine, nobody cares and people <laughs> feel that it's the best thing ever. But yeah. then if it breaks, you need an expert to fix it. So that's where uh, that's the, the point I think the venture capital uh, firms have realized. And now they're putting more money into Kubernetes startups to help enterprises.
1: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.
0: Yeah, this market certainly isn't going anywhere. <laughs> so uh, really exciting for stuff. Us. Yeah, yeah that's great for us. Uh, great for us. Great for many people out there. Um, all right, so let's dive into today's topic, which is Kubernetes Storage 101. I, I think this topic is going to be really great for a lot of people who are um, familiar with Kubernetes, familiar with containers, um, but really try to understand why Kubernetes may needs, uh Kubernetes applications may need storage and,
2: and how does it work, right? Um, so yeah. Containers are supposed to be ephemeral in nature. Like it, it won't help me. Like if I'm, uh, like compiling a to-do list every day, and at the end of the day, I'm just throwing away that list. I need to persist that data. I need to make sure that I maintain my to-do list. Or if I will or else I won't be productive enough. So yeah, we need persistent storage for containers. It's exactly why I want to throw away the to-do list. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah,
0: no, it's a great. I mean, that really boils down to the question of like, why do applications need persistent storage, Bobin?
2: So, uh, uh, again, containers, we all know ephemeral in nature, but then uh, if you are modernizing your applications, if you're modernizing your infrastructure, you need to bring in all your applications. You can't just have stateless applications running on Kubernetes. You need to think about all of your different applications that need to persist data. So if you are uh, thinking about databases or if you're talking about any other stateful applications, messaging queues, you need a layer of persistent storage that will help you maintain the data across the container lifecycle. So I can have uh, uh, my pod go down or my container die off and Kubernetes will bring the pod back online. But then what about data? You need that layer of persistent to, to make sure that your application data doesn't go away every time a pod reboot happen, restart happens.
0: Yeah, and this kind of brings up the the whole difference between like what is a stateful container and what is a stateless container, right? So, I think the way I'd like to talk about this is, you know, stateless is really when you think of nothing is being written to disk. So, in in many applications there's, you know, say a path on the server where, you know, mm-hmm. there's some sort of file or log where data is kept there, and then even if that process uh, you know, stops or or fails, like that that file system that holds that data is still there. And and it's a very similar idea in containers where a container can have a file system outside of you know the layers of container. And we, honest, we won't get into sort of what makes up a container. We're going to assume a little bit for time's sake <laughs> that you understand sort of the layers of container, but know that there's a file system in the container that's ephemeral and it goes away with it whenever a container starts or stops all, anything you put in there is gone. Uh, and then there's a way for containers to ingest sort of a file system from outside the container that uh, will keep that data. And so think of a stateless container as like a web application that's just the front end. I mean, it just kind of serves requests and sends it off somewhere else. It can be stopped and started as many times as you want, and you're mm-hmm. not going to lose any valuable information, right? Um,
2: and and, and this, is, this is what makes a container um, be yeah. ephemeral. And, uh, like, okay, so let's talk about where it all started, right? Like, Docker brought containers to the mainstream. Yeah. How did Docker containers handle uh, persistent storage?
0: Yeah, so Docker in the early days, you know, uh, again, took this sort of uh, DevOps tool, which um, made a application sort of, uh, you know, uh, Linux agnostic, and you could run it sort of anywhere with a runtime, which was Docker runtime at the time. And um, applications generally were stateless at the very beginning. And then there was a need for Docker to uh, allow for volumes uh, or data to exist outside the container. And so that's where the term Docker volumes came from, right? And and, and really this this was to fill the exact need of the data that someone cared about or the application cared about needed to outlive the actual container. Right. And so, um, the, the way that this generally worked in the beginning was, um, there was, uh, Docker volumes, which were part of sort of the Docker uh, tool chain and, um, Docker sort of, uh, kept them. And then there was a way to, um, uh, Map in a host path, and and that's sort of a host path uh, volume is what it was called, and really that's taking something like uh, you know var lib whatever or you know uh, mount slash my thing and making it available from the host in the container, and this is really the container sharing sort of the the mount namespace with the host, and this allows you to kind of use and store data on the host, um, and so this this kind of got by for a while in the sense that you could put data on the host, which meant you could mount an iSCSI volume or something and to the host and then share that mount path. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was really no coordination, right? There was no... Uh, how do you scale it
2: up? Exactly. Right. How, do,
0: how yeah. do you automate this process? And and that's where uh, uh, Docker introduced Docker plugins. Um, uh, and, and that was sort of... Uh, a way for external either vendors or projects to write a plugin that did everything from, uh, scanning and attaching and mounting, um, uh, volume on the host and making it available to the container. And that's, and that was just a single Docker host, right? Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And, and so that, like that whole problem took a while. Um, and, and people figured out, Oh, well now I can run a stateful thing. Um, but,
2: but then it really came into like, uh, you know, orchestrators came out. Right. Yep and and if you remember the early days we didn't have kubernetes as the clear winner we had uh, nomad we had kubernetes we had docker swarm uh, so we, there were a, a multiple options we had cloud foundry where people can you know, run containers so we needed to decide or come up with a way on how we can provide storage for all of our containers running on these different orchestration systems right
0: yeah, and I think the the question there is like, how does the plugin architecture play into, you know, the way that uh, an orchestrator like Docker Swarm or Kubernetes uh, works with containers?
2: Yep. So I still remember, uh, like when Kubernetes had all of those entry storage plugins, uh, like we had one for AWS, Google, I think, uh, VMware had one, Portworx had one. So everybody had uh, an entry plugin and it was getting really complicated because yep. from a storage vendor's perspective, you had to, uh, commit code to the Kubernetes open source upstream Kubernetes, uh, code base. You had to make sure that uh, it's very well tested. Um, but you also were at the risk where if some other piece of Kubernetes or some other module fails, it mm-hmm. can impact you. And it, it was really tedious to maintain the whole thing, both for the Kubernetes ecosystem and the storage vendors. Yeah, and and that's and like you said, a part of that is just
0: like how hard it is to maintain it. You know, I, I worked for a company called ClusterHQ, which had a Flocker project, and and really it was um, it was sort of the entry plugins for Docker before uh, Kubernetes really kind of existed and came around, and like the biggest problem was we had a we had a lot of uh, vendors right provide plugins and we wrote some and um, and really it was just like uh, it was a great tool but then the reality was it's so hard to maintain all that and then you know you have a, a single sort of entity whether it be kubernetes or, or a company like that you know trying to maintain and coordinate all these things so so how how did we fix this how did kubernetes go around administering or allowing uh, us to sort of administer
2: volumes at scale yeah so i don't think we we came to the to the correct answer uh, at once i I think we had something (laughs) called as a, a flex volume yeah. Uh, which which did move things out of the uh, like from entry to out of tree uh, but then it still needed dependencies from uh, uh, executables being available on the host perspective so uh, if i'm if i want to run a specific storage provider's plugin i needed to make sure that i have the binaries installed not just on the worker nodes but also on the master nodes in some cases and if you're using a managed kubernetes service in the cloud that's something that you didn't even have access to so uh, man uh, like deploying and using text-volume-based storage plugins became really difficult, and that's what led us to CSI. What's CSI, Bhavan? CSI is uh, an open source. It stands for container storage uh, interface. It's Got that it. one single standard and protocol that all vendors can comply to and offer a set of feature sets that works with Kubernetes, but then it keeps all the storage uh, providers code outside of Kubernetes. So as long as you comply to the standard, as long as you test it with the version, uh, anybody can, like from a user perspective, I can consume any storage uh, but by just the CSI plugin that I'm using in my Kubernetes cluster.
0: Yeah. And, and, and to be clear, right, CSI does, uh, effectively does, uh, creates the standard around how to attach volumes, how to mount mm-hmm. volumes, how to create snapshots, how to, uh, you know, uh, move and reattach volumes. And, and so these, these standard set of practices that nearly every single storage vendor or data management system that works with Kubernetes needs um, is, is really a massive undertaking of many, many different developers from many different uh, vendors and open source communities coming together and sort of agreeing on the best way for this to occur in the community. So, um, you know, this the CSI... Uh, standard does a great job at sort of moving and 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 keeping that community ticking along right but at the same time right it's limited in in a way in which right at, we you can't do anything more than what the CSI defines if you yep. only adhere to CSI. And, and then sometimes that's a struggle. And we'll, I mean, we'll talk about advanced use cases in a bit. And that's where there's sort of a gap between um, CSI today. Not that it won't ever get there and, and later. But I think before we ever get there, um, you know, FlexVolume, CSI, or Entry, they all allowed you to use the same sort of core objects, in Kubernetes to uh, define and use storage. And I think we absolutely need to cover those. So, um, you know, let's talk about storage classes because that's that's basically a great starting point for storage in Kubernetes.
2: Yeah, storage classes are the construct, like the Kubernetes construct, that allow operators and administrators to define how storage will be consumed. So you can have different storage backends, you can create a storage class per that storage backend, and even like multiple storage classes. But storage class basically helps you define a few things. They help you define the provisioner, which is obviously important, the type of storage, whether you want to offer block storage, so read-write once, or you want to offer a file storage, read-write many, that's, that can be defined at the storage class level. You, you provide additional details around uh, the name, the metadata, uh, if you want to construct it to a Specific cluster or move it around clusters, so all of that functionality is provided by storage classes.
0: Yeah. And and its core, right, it's really an administrative tool, right? The the ad, Whoever's administering that storage cluster or or storage component of that Kubernetes cluster is going to provide storage classes uh, in most cases because it's a cluster wide uh, sort of resource that defines really ge- generally three things, right? Or even a couple of things you could boil it down to is who's provisioning the storage and what are all the parameters associated with yep. that, with this specific storage class? So what, what am I getting, right, is what you were kind of talking through. So so you know, then then once you have a storage class, so as a as a as a user of
2: of Kubernetes, right? How do I get storage from that storage class? And that's where persistent claims or persistent volume claims comes comes into the picture, right? If I'm a developer or if I'm a user, I don't know anything about the storage backend. I just need say ten gigs of storage to start get started with my application. I can create that persistent volume claim object in Kubernetes and map it to a storage class. And if I have dynamic provisioning enabled, the storage class will basically spin up or deploy a persistent volume on the storage backend and then map it to my persistent volume claim. And it's that easy. Like all of this, like storage class definition needs to be done once uh, with no manual overhead after on. So like I, I can ask, hundreds of volumes for my applications. If I'm pointing it to the correct storage class, I will have a persistent volume that's being provisioned for me. And there's no manual uh, intervention needed in terms of deploying individual persistent volume and then mapping it to my persistent volume claim in my Kubernetes cluster. Yeah, that's a really good point,
0: right? Um, uh, You know, Bhavan used persistent volume as a term, and then there's persistent volume claim, which can actually be pretty confusing. But Uh, At the same token, I think the way I like to think about it is is the claim is uh, is more of a a request by a user that I need this Type of storage. You're actually not guaranteed to get it, right? In the sense that um, if you put a claim out there, necessarily there's you know, that claim has to be bound to an available volume. Yep. Um today, like Bob had mentioned, uh, you know, dynamic provisioning pretty much um, makes this possibility a, a little more or less likely that you won't get a bound <laughs> volume. But um, you know, there was a day in Kubernetes where a claim had to pick from a an already provisioned pool of PVs, yep. which was persistent volume. So um, you know, there's just really that association think of it I, again I like think of it PVC is the request and the
2: PV kind of represents the real thing that holds the data All right, Yep. and the, the beauty of the architecture is as a developer I don't care about the PV like I, I know I have to define a persistent volume claim as part of my application I have to request for that volume but then I don't I don't have to worry about how it's being actually provisioned I just specify if I want a block volume or file volume, the size, if I need additional things, uh, I can just specify it in the claim and then mount that claim as a volume mount to my pod and make it part of my application.
0: Yeah, and you know, like you said in the application, right? You just reference essentially that uh, a persistent volume claim in your sort of uh, volumes declaration. Uh, you know, and and you know something full circle here, I think, which is interesting, is that all those things we talked about early in this episode around Docker volumes and host paths and and things like that are still available within <laughs> Kubernetes, right? You you like that lineage of providing a a a persistent place to record data. Uh, is still available. You can configure host paths in in Kubernetes, and there's there's often great usages for that, right? Um, but persistent volume claims for, for the purposes of sort of uh, where we're focusing, right, is sort of the way to consume and manage
2: stateful um, uh, pods in, in Kubernetes. Yeah, definitely. Like if we all know, like if history doesn't repeat it, definitely times. So <laughs> we, you will see the similarities to how things used to be and how things are today in Kubernetes as well. Yeah,
0: and Kubernetes introduces all sorts of, like, something we didn't even put in here uh, in our notes is is introduces all sorts of different types of volumes, right? There's volumes where you can uh, create a source from, like, a GitHub repo. It'll just, like, pull in that code or something like that into a location in a, in a sort of ephemeral PVC. There's there's really great use cases uh, around uh, how to use volumes in general mm-hmm. um, uh, and and. and outside of sort of dynamically creating persistent volume claims and, and volumes from, you know, data management systems or, or CSI plugins.
3: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
0: So okay, so this is a great um, opportunity to, to to dive into what are some of the advanced use cases when it comes to storage. Now that we have an understanding that you know there's a pluggable architecture. For containers mm-hmm. that made its way into Kubernetes, and Kubernetes provides, uh, you know, had provide entry plugins, but now the standard is CSI. So now we have CSI and a plugin that can manage many applications and provide persistent volume claims to them, but. But what are some of those uh, use cases that maybe CSI doesn't cover yet, or you know that you really need to think about
2: running uh, uh, storage or stable containers yeah. in production? So yes, definitely. So like from an advanced use cases perspective, my mind directly goes to data protection and disaster recovery. You need a way, like even if you are deploying apps using containers. and and using stateful apps, you need a way to protect your applications. You need a way to back it up. You need a way to restore it. Uh, If you are actually bringing or running these applications in enterprise environments, uh, in your production clusters, you need a disaster recovery strategy synchronous, asynchronous DR. Uh, Again, things just don't go away because you have modernized your application. Like you needed a DR plan for your virtual machines, but not for containers. That's not true. If you are thinking about a Kubernetes solution, a storage solution that works with Kubernetes, you need to think about these additional advanced use cases as well.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. And it kind of goes, it goes back to a little bit of the news article we talked about uh, uh, in terms of application consistency, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many pieces to an application uh, in Kubernetes, including the persistent volume and persistent volume claims, which also are just metadata objects, right? In Kubernetes, right? A persistent volume is defined in YAML, a persistent volume claim is defined in YAML, but you still have to actually move the data. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and so like, you know, that whole uh, idea of, uh, can I just take my existing backup solution and
2: apply it to Kubernetes? Can I do that? Uh, not really. Like exactly. There are certain things that you need to keep in mind because a traditional backup solution that maybe is talking to your vCenter server or your an Prism Central in- interface is going and getting an inventory of all the virtual machines that you're running in your on top of your infrastructure. But they don't really talk to the Kubernetes API server. You need a solution that can talk to the Kubernetes API server, identify the namespaces, identify all these metadata objects, the different Kubernetes objects, uh, backup Uh, the persistent volumes and volume claims and actually move the data. So uh, you definitely need to look at a solution that helps you protect your applications that's running on Kubernetes.
3: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
0: yeah, it's a great point. I mean, and there's so many other things to think about in terms of you know uh, how you need to snapshot it, which CSI does actually support snapshotting. Uh, but there's also you know, how do you configure classes of service or the right type of performance, um, or how do you move volumes in in, in a way that's uh, in a migration and not necessarily just a backup and restore. But I think those are topics for another day in the podcast. I think yeah, that's uh, too much for intro. That's too much for intro. <laughs> so so I think let's recap um, what really we talked about when it comes to kubernetes storage 101 um, you know we, we started with why do kubernetes need uh, sorry containers need storage and that's because you know the application code runs inside the container and is portable across many different environments which is a beautiful thing about application images and docker images but the reality is those applications still produce data and often need that data to outlive the container itself whether that container uh, is run and restarted on the same host or a different host that data needs to live and 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 kind of be managed Uh, and have data services around with it. Um, We covered sort of uh, uh, host path and uh, some other different types of volumes that Docker Mm -hmm. originally came out with. uh, And
2: then that Kubernetes... (laughs) Yeah. yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, go for it. And, yeah and, and, the the types of storage uh, plugins that Kubernetes had, right? So entry, yeah. flex volume, CSI. Uh, definitely, we should be aware of how things have evolved. But then, if you are starting a greenfield deployment, definitely choose CSI as yeah. that's the, the, the solution that will be maintained and features will be added to it. Uh, flex volume will be around for a while, but there's there's no new development going on in 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 that domain right now. Is it not deprecated yet? Uh, No, I was just looking at it for this uh, podcast episode because I would have thought it was. Uh, It's close, then. I feel yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah, so really, it went from a single container uh, to you know orchestrating many applications, and those many applications need uh, many pieces of storage, which are persistent volume claims and persistent volumes, which is really the the core component when it comes to managing uh, data for your Kubernetes applications, right? Yeah and uh, advanced use cases, you know, backup, restore, and all those things. Really, uh, the point being that we brought those up is because when you take a Kubernetes sort of stored 101 uh, view of the world, uh, you naturally move in that direction eventually by the time you start using these things. And, and, and so how do you uh, provide those services? And they all relate back to how do you really uh, uh, provide those types of services to the objects like PVCs and PVs um, and the data within them.
2: Perfect. I think that's that's like three key takeaways right there. Like we yeah. we're all set to uh, land this ship. Land the ship. All right. (laughs) I don't know if land the ship works, but yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Well, anyway, thank you
0: for listening to this episode of Kubernetes Bytes. And so, uh, you know, we're available on Twitter now, I believe. And um, yeah, we have a Twitter handle and everything. (laughs) So please uh, uh, tweet us on there and uh, rate the podcast on, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts or wherever you can rate it really Take that
2: opportunity to provide us some feedback; uh, it, it really helps us out. And if you're listening to this, uh, share with share it with your friends and colleagues at your next virtual happy hour, and uh, help us get more and more people involved and get help us expand the audience for this podcast. Yeah,
0: and a little plug for the next episode: we're going to be talking about uh, cloud native storage versus traditional storage and just as interesting yeah yeah just as a teaser right it's a whole different world of storage uh uh vendors and uh projects out there that claim as uh cloud native storage versus your traditional sort of uh storage and i'll leave it at that and leave the rest for the next episode nice
2: that's a great cliffhanger
0: (laughs) 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 all right and with
3: that take care everybody stay safe
0: Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes Podcast.
3: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our US based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues.